Welcome to America's Heroes Group podcast with information and resources that's disseminated intentionally to empower our military population with host Vietnam veteran Cliff Kelly, co-host Iraq veteran Colonel Dr. Damon Arnold, and co-host Army National Guard veteran Sean Claiborne. And now, America's Heroes Group podcast. Good afternoon, good afternoon. Welcome to America's Heroes Group on WVON 1690 AM, the talk of Chicago. I am Vietnam veteran host Cliff Kelly. America's Heroes Group is a live streaming podcast, global platform, radio, print, and digital media broadcast show that empowers change agents through intentionally disseminating information, resources, and referrals to empower our military population. And welcome to America's Heroes Group Roundtable with our partner, Jesse Brown VA. Jesse Brown VA works. Today is June is LGBTQ Pride Month, and today is Saturday, June the 11th, 2022. You just heard our host, Cliff Kelly. I'm Sean Claiborne, the co-host. And our executive producer is Glenda Smith, with our, with our digital media producer being Ivan Ortega of Scouts Honor Productions. We have a great show for you today. And we have a familiar voice. You might have seen him or heard of uh, heard him before on our show. Um, we have a couple of great uh, things to talk about. Will Treese, he's a Jesse Brown VA licensed clinical social worker, primary care clinics, and he believes in equal opportunity because he is EEO LGBTQ special emphasis program manager. And also our panelist, Becky Powers, JBVA, she specializes in spinal cord. Uh, she's a spinal cord coordinator for the LGBTQ community, and we want to have some conversation about celebrating LGBTQ Pride Month, and also services offered at the Jesse Brown VA. How are you guys doing today? Wonderful. How are you? Pretty good. Well, actually, i got to be honest with you. I'm not doing too good. <laughs> i got a, a sciatica going on right now. Um, been with me for oh, the last no. three days, and that is, that is not fun. Not fun at all. No. So what can you tell us about what is going on with uh, the Jesse Brown and services with spinal cord injury, things like that. And how does this work with the LGBTQ community? Yeah, so I actually, I have two roles at the moment, um, soon to be one role. My my um, first role is the spinal cord injury program coordinator. And I just got a new role as the full-time LGBTQ plus uh, program coordinator. And so I'm going to be transferring into that role, but I haven't yet full-time. Um, Jesse Brown is really lucky to have a full-time LGBTQ plus uh, program coordinator. We right now are going to be one of only a few VAs in the country that have a full-time staff person dedicated to ensuring that our LGBTQ plus patients have access to the care that they need. Um, and so over the last 10-ish years, we've really increased the services that we provide to LGBTQ veterans. Um, but now having a full-time position, you know, we're going to be able to increase those even more, which is going to be great. And, Will, so what can you tell us? You're the guest of honor today. What can you tell us about uh, some of this, the uh, unique challenges that people in the LGBTQ community face? And I guess now it's LGBTQ+. Plus. Yeah. So. so there are um, quite a few challenges that the uh, LGBTQ plus uh, community faces, especially with veterans. 
Um, as a whole, um, the veteran population actually has a higher uh, rate of trans um, individuals in the community. So we get the opportunity to, to treat them in a very special way. Um, additionally, um, LGBTQ individuals have um, higher rates of substance abuse, tobacco use, um, have lower rates of um, utilizing uh, different services within the healthcare community and tend to be um, at uh, disadvantaged um, areas for, for different uh, healthcare uh, reasons and uh, like utilization of, uh, of healthcare services. Um, my role at Justin Brown VA is to really focus more on the uh, veterans, or excuse me, the employee side of things, while Becky is going to be focused much more on the uh, health care of our uh, veterans of this community. Okay. And so when we talk about um, the LGBTQ plus community, one thing I, I, th- I thought was interesting, I was looking at some documents online, and they, were t- and I, they said there was some research done that L- in the LGBTQ community, there are two to, fi- two to five times more likely to join the military. So I thought it was really, yeah. uh, really interesting. Trans individuals in particular, uh, transgender individuals are two to five times, uh, the, the, what is it? It's like the percentage of transgender individuals in the military is two to five times higher than in the civilian population. The transgender individuals are serving in the military in, um, in really high numbers, I think, for a, a lot of different reasons. And that means that they, you know, are eligible for VA health care as well. And Jesse Brown offers a lot of services to the transgender and gender nonconforming community. Um, right now, the VA provides just about everything other than gender affirming surgeries. Although the VA has um, started putting a process in place to start providing gender affirming surgeries as well, we're hoping that that's going to come down within the next year or so. There's some work streams going on. But in the meantime, um, we do, at Jesse Brown, we do hormone replacement therapy. We have a dedicated speech therapist that does gender-affirming voice training. She's going to be starting a conversation group as well in the next couple months. Um, We do any, you know, readiness evaluations. We write letters of support. Any mental health care that a trans or gender nonconforming veteran needs, we offer that. Um, and then we have all kinds of different like prosthetics items, um, that transgender individuals can get as well, like chest binders, um, gaffs, things like that. So walk me through the history of, um, the LGBTQ community plus or LGBTQ plus community. We need some more letters in there, I guess. How does, how has that, how is it? Cause I remember when I joined the military, it was like, don't ask, don't tell was a thing. That was the Clinton administration. Don't ask, don't tell was, was the thing. And then it evolved into, and also in part of the UCMJ, which is a uniform code of military justice, in the in the legal structure of the military, that was considered sodomy, and that was it was actually illegal to behave in any way that suggested that you were not 100% straight male female. So then, so how did we evolve from that time frame to a time frame when we went from there to um, a ban on trans um, people in the military in the previous administration to the current administration now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a complicated and long history, right? And I, I think, like, LGBTQ individuals have been discriminated against in the military for a very, very long time. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, you know, when Will is talking about all those things that, you know, LGBTQ individuals, you know, higher rates of mental health issues, things like that, that's partly because they've been discriminated against and the military has been guilty of that as well. Um, I, I can't necessarily speak to the military side of things, but, you know, Obama repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 2011, I believe. Um, and in terms of the transgender ban, that never applied to the VA. Um, and so it applied to the military, and it was all tied up in the courts for a long time. Um, but that never applied to the VA, thankfully. And so we've always been offered, well, since I've been at the VA, we've been offering these services to LGBTQ vets. And then so, uh, Will, I'm sorry, go ahead. We had more to add. Just really quickly, I mean, you know, it's one thing to change a law, but it's another thing to change a culture, right? Right. And so that's what we're kind of working on now. It's like people can serve openly, but I think that culture change is really what takes takes a lot more time sometimes. Now, I also wanted to ask Will, is that how has the culture changed in the military? Um, And also even for veterans, because a lot of veterans still – because we have different different ideologies, different cultures from all across the country. Um, even even before mm-hmm. African Americans, upon a time African Americans couldn't serve 100 percent in the military. We had to take very very menial tasks and weren't respected as soldiers and sailors and airmen and marines. So what is what is is what needs to happen for a culture to change? And then what you th- what do you think the impact will be in the broader communities around the, the country? Sure, sure. So the, the interesting thing is that you know. LGBTQ folks serving in the military is not anything new. You can trace histories going back to the Revolutionary War where people would serve as a male to get in the service or would um, assist in different ways. So culture change is not easy. It's, It's a very slow process. But I've found that within... So I've been with the VA since 2011, and I've found that since that time... Um, many people, many former, um, many vets uh, are actually okay with having LGBT servicemen and women being with them because at the end of the day, we all bleed red. And, you know, if you're there to save your, your fellow soldier, that's what, that's what it's all about. Um, so discrimination, you know, like you mentioned with African-Americans has been very prevalent both with, you know, uh, people of color and LGBT folks. And it's not been an easy battle, but I really believe that the culture change within the past decade or so with the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, with uh, the trans ban, and moving forward, um, we're allowing all people of all races and um, uh, identities to serve within the military. It's funny because I remember when Don't Ask, Don't Tell came out, it was um, it was seen as a way to help the LG. Back then it was called the, just the, the LG yeah. community. <laughs> but it was a way to help the, the community because that thought, well, yeah. people have their privacy. They can do what they want to do. This would be a great thing. Why was that not a good idea? Well, in many ways, I believe that it wasn't a good idea because, well, it was, a, it was a knee-jerk reaction because I really believe that the acting administration felt like they needed to do something without alienating either side, but it also became a weapon in many ways because you had many servicemen and women outing other people to get them out of the service, and then you couldn't serve openly mm-hmm. as who you were either. So that's why I think that um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was was a huge blunder in many ways, but I understand why it wasn't, why it was implemented at the time it was implemented. Mm-hmm. 
So for a person for a person who's straight or a person who doesn't understand um, the LGBTQ community, which is a lot of the people I think across the country, um, and I don't claim to be an expert at all on any topic when it comes to sexuality, or human biology, or anything like that. Explain to us um, what gender dysphoria is, and then also what what it might feel like to be in that kind of situation. Why it's why because a lot of people are really really confused. We have all these these controversies today talking about you know should a um, a trans boy or girl serve or play in a sport that's of a of you know that's a, of a cisgendered male or a female or boy. So these types of conversations are are, are um, bring a lot of division across the country, and people don't really seem to have, understand what it's like for the other side. Yeah, I mean, gender dysphoria is technically the diagnosis that you give someone who identifies as transgender. What it really is is the discomfort, extreme, extreme, extreme discomfort um, that comes along with feeling as though you were born in the wrong body, basically. And it's not, it's not easy. It's, um, you know, I think people with gender dysphoria have a lot of anxiety. They have a lot of discomfort. They have a lot of discomfort in their own body and the expectations of how they're supposed to act and dress and behave. You know, a lot of things that those of us who um, don't have that incongruence, we really take for granted. You know, I can walk through the world looking and feeling and acting like a woman, and I never have to think twice about it. And that's a real privilege for me that not everybody has. For some people, that's a great discomfort. You think about, you know, how we expect boys and girls to act, even just for from a young age. If somebody is telling you how to act and, and expecting you to act a certain way and you don't feel that way on the inside, you kind of grow up with this, like, this sense of just sort of discomfort and unease and anxiety and it cause really a lot of problems. Um, I also kind of personally, it's a little controversial, right, that we're technically giving a mental health diagnosis to somebody who identifies as transgender because, you know, um, homosexuality used to also be a mental health disorder. And we know that it's really not a mental health disorder. Um, at the same time, you know, in order to access services at the VA, you have to have a diagnosis. So if you have hypertension, you know, you're going to get prescribed blood pressure medication, but you're not going to get prescribed blood pressure medication if you don't have a diagnosis of hypertension. You're not going to get prescribed insulin if you don't have a diagnosis of diabetes. And so this is kind of the diagnosis that we use in, in order to ensure that people access services. And the services that we provide really do help with the symptoms of gender dysphoria. So if somebody can present in a way that's more in line with their identity it really starts to ease some of that anxiety and discomfort that they feel. Um, and it can really help immensely. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I've read about also is that uh, one uh, serious issue is that suicide is very prevalent, particularly around trans people. Um, yeah. do you, it, and there's a lot of, I was reading different studies, one was from Harvard, one was from John Hopkins, it was a third study, and they were looking at, um, after treatment is, is given, where people are able to finally gender affirm, how the suicides rates have changed. What is what from you from your understanding, your expertise as a consensus of how gender affirming treatment and um, and resources help people stay healthy, but also keep them um, mentally happy. I mean, it does. It does. It helps, right? And and it's unfortunate because there's really a lack of research and data to to back up everything because the LGBTQ community, there's just not a lot of information out there. So we kind of just have to go with what we have. 
um, which is not a ton. However, suicide rates, thoughts of suicide um, is very, very prevalent in the transgender community. Um, And we know that accessing services and even just talking to a provider who is competent, who kind of has a, a, a certain level of understanding of what you might be going through can help. Um, it can help with those, with those thoughts, with the difficulties. Um, there's a, there's a super high percentage of LGBTQ individuals who have been discriminated against in the healthcare system. And so we're talking about like discrimination in the military, right? And discrimination in the healthcare system. And so it's so important for us as providers at the VA. Um, to be treating everybody with respect and dignity, but also to have an understanding of um, of some of these things that are so important and the unique needs of the LGBTQ community, because that's how we that's how we help them. Mm-hmm. So, well, let me ask you a question. This question: Do you feel that um, that across the country, or that uh, that the LGBTQ community is becoming more visible? Uh, that people are taking taking the LGBTQ community more serious when it comes to healthcare, and also. When we talk about, um, say, a person who's, in, who's who's LGBTQ, when they want to go to the VA, are, do, do they have the – will they feel welcome? Will they feel like they can get access to services? Or will they feel alienated because maybe people don't understand their situation? Sure. Actually, that's something that both Becky and myself are, are working on because um, whereas Becky's role is very much focused on LGBTQ veteran care, um, my role is to make sure that we have – employees who want to come to the VA, stay at the VA, and are welcoming of those who are in anywhere among the spectrum of those who are LGBTQ+. So we make sure that we have providers that are competent, uh, welcoming, and that also we have the ability to retain and maintain them. um, So that way we have veterans coming to us for adequate and um, uh, culturally competent health care. Well, I thought it was interesting, too, is that like, the numbers, the sheer numbers of the people people in the community that have uh, – that it's never talked about. There was something – I'm trying to see if I can pull that data up. There was something like over – I don't know if you maybe have maybe a tip of your telling more better than I do. That There was something like 100,000 or uh, or so uh, veterans out across the country that, that are LGBTQ – identify in the LGBTQ community that don't get services um, until recently because of gender-affirming treatment is now something that could be done when previously it could not be done. Yeah, I don't know the exact numbers. Uh, Again, I think it's partly lack of um, proper data collection in general. The estimate is that there's like a million LGBTQ veterans living in the country. I don't know exactly what proportion of those are getting their care at the VA, I do think that part of it is um, is that culture that we were talking about, right? The military, the VA is often seen as kind of an extension of the military, and a lot of LGBTQ people were actively discriminated against when they were in the military, so they might not want to come to the VA. They might not realize that, you know, we've been working hard to try to change some of that stigma and to offer them the care that they need. Um, and so, you know... I, I think it's difficult. I think it's like part of my role as well is to educate providers and educate staff at the VA on the unique needs of the LGBTQ population so that when they walk in the door or they call to schedule an appointment or they get enrolled in the VA, um, we're asking the appropriate questions. We're not making assumptions. It's a tall order. Um, 
but I think it's really important. Now, I wanted to get more into my back, but, you know, we're running out of time. So the thing, <laughs> I think the thing that I thought was really like about from that, that, that statistic. Now, this is something I also found that, like you mentioned, uh, Becky, this is very hard to quantify how big the problem is because we don't have accurate numbers. This was actually in the Rolling Stone. The Rolling Stone had a, uh, a data a, a statistic that said there was 134,000 transgender vendor, veterans of the American military, in addition to 15,000 transgender active service members, according to the Rolling Stone. So, Becky and Will, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on the show with us. We want to have you back again to talk more about it. We have a lot of talk to talk about, particularly of what I can do about the sciatica. This is America's Heroes Group. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit americashg.org.